You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that like talking about other filmmakers' work and related film topics. And for this extra, we're very lucky to have a special guest with us today. We do. We have Edward Ross, the uh, author of the graphic novel uh, Filmish. So uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Edward. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean... I, I. just to sort of kick things off here uh, for people who don't sort of know this, um, I uh, first of all I have to give a shout out because I, I bought this uh, a couple of days ago. Your your graphic novel, Filmish: A Graphic Journey Through Film. Uh, I bought it from my good friend Paul at Orbital Comics in London. That's orbitalcomics.com. <laughs> and I promised they gave me a little bit of a discount, so I promised I'd mention them on the podcast, which I've done. Um, but I have to say, I haven't been able to put this down. Um, this really is like a global history of cinema. It sort of covers 120 years in 175 pages. Um, it's everything from the Lumiere brothers and Edison right up to contemporary films. But much more than that, it tends to deal with film theory, narrative, genre, social relevance and it's just an excellent, I mean, I used to teach film and this would be an excellent uh, film studies tool for any film students out there. So uh, congratulations. You know, I have to admit this is not only well drawn, but the, the, the whole um, structure of it is, is, is absolutely fascinating. So, um, you know, that's my sycophantic bit over. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just wanted to say that this this I didn't know anything about this until Simon organized for you to come on the show and um yeah i bought it and and it really is quite intriguing oh thank you <laughs> thanks so tell us more <laughs> well where did the idea for doing the graphic novel come from um it kind of i don't know it just kind of landed in my lap or it kind of appeared out of nowhere um so when i came out of uni i, I studied film at uni i don't know if you can tell um, I, I, said it's like, so I, did, I did film theory at, at uni and I, I kind of grew up wanting to be a filmmaker actually um, and I, I went to uni, studied film and um, came out of uni, started work on my first short film script and sort of having this kind of vague notion of, of what, to, what to do next um, and at, at that time sort of simultaneously I started getting really interested in comics again, um, like I'd been reading them again, like so I read them in childhood and I was reading them again since um, meeting my 
partner who introduced me to when I was 16 she sort of reintroduced me to comics and introduced me to grown-up comics and um, so I'd been reading them again and was getting interested in making them so out of uni I kind of had these two things going on I was I was trying to write this short film script um, and I also started getting sort of much more interested in writing comics and this, this kind of really became very evident to me quite quickly that for all the lack of uh, enthusiasm I had for writing this short film script I had you know all this enthusiasm for for writing comics and I kind of started to just sort of slip away from filmmaking into comics um, so about that time I started sort of messing around drawing comics uh, just sort of starting to find my feet and I was working at the Edinburgh Film House at the time and the um, the marketing manager there so I saw, saw that I was doing comics and, and thought that it'd be kind of a it'd be interesting to have some sort of comics thing done for the members newsletter. So I, that was kind of when I came up with the idea for Filmish. I took some of the research I'd done uh, at uni for my dissertation on food and well, I did my dissertation on food and horror in Far East Asian cinema, um, <laughs> which is a, a fantastic topic, actually. <laughs> um, and, um, and I sort of translated that into a short comic for the newsletter. So that was where Filmish came from was, was, uh, a growing disinterest in making films, but I had always had this real passion for analyzing films, looking at films and kind of better understanding films. Um, and, and just my growing love of comics sort of just sort of by accident led to this, this amalgamation of the two forums. Well, I, one thing I, I love about the graphic novel is that you, um, you delve into certain films um, in each um, chapter and you give them like two or three pages. Um, so how did you decide which films to, to, to do that to, to, to expand upon and, and put in those chapters? So each chapter is, is based on a different theme that I think is going to be interesting. So in the book, we've got the eye, the body, sets and architecture and so forth. So each chapter, that's kind of the starting point, is, is finding a, a topic that I think is going to be a really interesting way to look at film in a different way. Um, that was kind of when I was studying film at uni, that was always what interested me most. It was less the kind of auteur theory stuff or the industry, sort of the industry stuff and more the, the weird themes and stuff. Um, so I was in, you know, I enjoyed doing a course on movie music, for example, because it was something that I really never thought about until I studied it. So with filmage, that's what I do is I, I take a, a topic that I think is going to be interesting. So sets and architecture was one that kind of inspired me early on back when I was self-publishing Filmish before, before the book. It, it, that's the starting point. So you start with this idea and it's like, how do films use architecture, use the set design to convey parts of the story and to tell us more about the characters, to tell us more about the world and to also sort of harbor meaning for the film. And from there, I kind of try and find films that, that fit and that involves doing a lot of research and reading uh, and watching. And then obviously my kind of my eye is drawn towards the films that I love the most. Um, so in terms of the sets and architecture one, um, the, the, the big one actually in that for me is, is Die Hard, um, mm-hmm. which was a film that I grew up, um, you know, from probably too young an age, really, uh, really enjoying. You know, that was kind of my, um, when, I was, when I was off sick at school, <laughs> my day off film would be I'd put the VHS of Die Hard in and watch that. While I was sort of 
curled up sick in bed. So it was kind of like my, my day off film. So I watched that quite, you know, a fair bit whenever I had the day off. Um, but, you know, so that was a movie that, you know, like I thought of as this great action movie, really entertaining. Um, and then I read this, this article on it um, by um, this, uh, by a blogger who, who, uh, and, and author who writes about architecture called Chef Mana. Um, he wrote this blog, build, uh, Building Blog. And he wrote about the idea that Die Hard is the best architectural film from the last 25 years. The idea being that in the film, John McClane um, uses the Nectomi Plaza, which is this quite dull uh, corporate space, but he uses it in every sort of conceivable way he can as a weapon and as a shield and as a hiding place. Um, and he goes into the infrastructure of the building. So he traverses the building in any which way, but going like up the stairs and through the lifts and down the corridors. And so he explores the space and he, he transforms the space in the process. Um, and so that's like, that kind of blew my mind in terms of thinking about this film that, you know, it's a great classic action movie, but actually it's got a lot more going on in it. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with film. I want to take movies that actually you've maybe seen a lot of, a lot of times. You've seen a few times. And just give you a new way to look at them, to give you a chance to watch them again with a new outlook on them and to illuminate them in a different way. Um, so that, that's ultimately how I choose the films. Is I, I kind of want to try and balance films that I have seen before and that I love and that I now have a new insight on because of my reading. And then yeah. also help introduce people to new films they might have not seen before. So it's kind of a balancing act between the two. Well, yeah, I love the, uh, the, the bit you did about uh, Pontypool. Because I know that's a film that not many people have seen, but it is a it's a really great film because of its use of language mm-hmm. and sort of doing a, a zombie film in, in a very different and original way. So I love that you actually ex- explored that film because yeah. not many people talk about it. I know it's yeah. it's it's, it's, uh, it's definitely due a lot more attention. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic yeah. movie. That was actually pretty much that was like on the list for a long time. I need to write about this, this film and almost shaped the content of book in a sense. Like it, 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 I wanted to feature that so much that I needed to find a way to get in. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what you've done, I mean, what, what is, what is really, again, quite fascinating about this whole thing is obviously film, uh, you know, as we find with doing these podcasts, um, you know, is such a massive topic. Uh, you know, even though there's only about, you know, 120 years of history or whatever, it's such a massive, massive topic. And you have managed to, I mean, it's very broad in here. You've managed to, you know, reference and cover, you know, so many films from history and and and, and different cultures and, and, and everything. And but what I what I particularly like about it, I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the content and the structure, but obviously the, the artwork itself is, is still, you know, really good. You, you've captured those characters and those films. But what I love is much as somebody would sort of narrate a documentary, if they were making a documentary about this, you've actually kind of put yourself in it and, and take us on this journey. And I, I just I really like that. I love the fact uh, that, 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 that you know you've in, included yourself as a sort of caricature in it as well <laughs> so it, yeah, so egotistical yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well um, you know it's your art isn't it you've got to put yourself in there <laughs> like but, I think you know like I never wanted to 
suggest that like I'm a film expert that I know everything um and like you know everything that's in there has been because I've spent ages researching it you know um but it is kind of like in a sense it is autobiographical you know it is it is my passions for film my interests in film and the films I've chosen so I think it's kind of good to acknowledge it's definitely not meant to be um a complete history um and it's kind of very deliberately although the book starts at the beginning of cinema and it kind of ends now like it ends with a kind of look forward into the future of what cinema is I never wanted it to be a sort of chronological history um and so I never wanted to, you know, it, 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 I didn't feel like it needed to be a complete history of, of cinema. I wanted to, to explore these different angles and to compare films from maybe vastly different eras. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, it, I guess it's kind of appropriate that I'm in there because it isn't meant to be uh, a sort of an objective history, you know? No, absolutely. It's, it's very personal. I mean, I read your, um, I read your little forward at the beginning uh, as well, and it seems like, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, you had a very similar sort of thing to myself in Simon, where you know you sort of grew up watching uh, watching VHSs of, of all these things, as well as going to the cinema. And um, you, you, you know, I, I like the fact that you've sort of highlighted that film isn't just about entertainment and escapism, but it's about so many other things. And uh, you, you know, yes, you've absolutely made it personal, but at the same time. Um, you, you know, for anyone out there that is sort of studying film theories in, in general, uh, you, you know, th- th- this, I would say, would be quite an easy way for them to get up to speed, as, as it were, uh, because obviously it's, it's, it's a very easy read, but it, but it is all there. You know, it yeah. really is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to, to, to provide that. I wanted to be able to um, introduce these ideas I think are really important and really interesting. Um, in a way that's that's accessible, um, you know. Like I think, I think film theory can kind of get bogged down in the sort of academic side of things. Um, but I always find like I find the I find the theory interesting. I often find the theory more interesting necessarily than the context it was taught in. You know, like I I felt that there was weight to it that could be you know brought out that that we could in, enjoy it almost, you know, like I wanted, I, I kind of think film theory can be a form of entertainment in itself if, if done correctly, you know, um, and I wanted to, in the book, sort of remove that kind of academic context as much as possible or the academic language so that anyone could really read it and understand it. You might not, as a result of the book, know the name of the theory uh, necessarily. Like you might read a th- about, a th- you might read about a theory without it necessarily being sort of so that you will now know that it is this theory and when you read about that theory in future you'll know what that is um but you know i'm trying to give an overview of these ideas and sort of spark off those ideas for people who might not have heard them before so what did you think of uh room um it, oh god two one seven two three seven yeah well i kind of featured a bit of that uh a bit of what they feature in that film i featured the um rob Agger's theory on The Shining. So Room 237 is the film that is um, a collection of fan theories bordering on conspiracy theories about the film, or not, not even bordering on conspiracy theories about The Shining. Um, so in that film, they've got um, the, the, the idea that Stanley Kubrick hid um, a, a, a secret message that he had faked the moon landings 
and the idea that he hid that in The Shining. So that's one of the theories they cover in, in Room 237. But there's this other one, Rob Agar, and I feature him in the book. Um, he talked about how the architecture of the Overlook Hotel and The Shining is sort of impossible. It's an impossible architecture because you have all these spaces that don't really line up logically. And also, so, so generally speaking, when you look at the, when you watch the film, you're not really sure where everything is in relation to each other. And when you analyze the film, as he has done, like watching it again and again obsessively, um, you see that you have all these spaces that kind of overlap in impossible ways. Um, now, some people, most people could possibly argue that that's because it's a set and they, built, they had to build it that way for a practical <laughs> reason. Um, which is true, partly true, yeah. certainly. But at the same time, and as he argues, Stanley Kubrick was obsessive about detail and perfect, you know, attention to detail and perfection, and that there would be no accidents in his films. And so he argues that as a result, and possibly deliberately, The Shining creates this deliberately impossible architecture that kind of loses you within it. So when you're watching it, you have this uncanny sense that the space is wrong. Um, so I kind of included that in, in the architecture chapter because I thought it was a really interesting point. And whether it's deliberate or not, I think is true that when you watch The Shining, that you're lost in the building and that it does feel kind of wrong to, when you watch it. You really don't know where things are. And it's a building that feels kind of um, almost fluid in its, in its layout. I mean, there's there's lots of images in The Shining about it about labyrinths, and there's a there's a maze, and um, and also the fact that Kubrick, um, one of his uh, production companies was called Minotaur, and of course the Minotaur was always in the center of the maze and everything. So it it, it kind of rings true the whole uh, it sort of being maybe like a maze like but mm -hmm. I don't know how to what extent he had that in mind. It's it's funny watching that film because as a filmmaker you always hear weird and wonderful theories about your film and at the time of making it you you never thought of these things i mean i've personally i had one about my sh first short film firepower where a guy said it's all about suicide when i'm like well okay but that's not what i was thinking about when i made the film or what the point i was making but that's what he saw and especially with that uh with that film it did seem to be that a lot of people were putting their own spin on the film yeah i, I was gonna say i just think room 237 um you, you know it, it's it's that thing so some some of those theories i think are, are absolutely fascinating and may have you know may have some you know element of uh you know, reality to the theory, but some of them are just so far out that I think, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I think that, um, I think something that I sort of learned making filmage, or maybe, maybe I learned this wrongly because, because as, as you say, like people find things in your work that, that isn't there. Um, but one thing that I kind of learned is that in one sense, there are no accidents when you're making something in the sense that every single thing you do someone has to make a decision on. So in the sense of like The Shining, someone had to draw up plans because that was a set that was built. So it wasn't a pre-existing building. It was a set that was built. So someone had to have planned all those elements, all those impossibilities were planned into the building. Um, now, whether or not that was deliberate or not, 
is another question in the sense of whether it's deliberate that they that they hope that would show up on screen or not is, is, is a question but it, you know one thing that people say is is you know it's just a film it was just an accident but I don't think that there are accidents in the sense that someone has to go and choose the costume someone has to go and build the set um choose the camera angles edit it and so forth so throughout all that process all these things are decisions that are made that impact on the final piece um but that said people will interpret things that aren't necessarily deliberate on your part. Um, and I think that's actually one of the kind of key themes of filmish is that that's kind of part of the fun um, of, yeah, of, oh, definitely. of watching things. And that, and that it's, it's important to, you know, like I kind of, in the book, you know, I argue against sort of auteur theory that the authors, first of all, that the director is the author and the only uh, constructor of meaning for for the film, and also that 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 meaning is the only valid meaning. I think it's it's really powerful that people are able to watch or, or consume a piece of art and um, and interpret it the way they um, they want to. Um, I think there are kind of maybe more um, valid or justifiable interpretations than others. But, um, but I think it's really important that we that we don't disavow people's interpretations um, because they're not the filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Oh, no, that's half the fun of, of watching a film, yeah. especially one that leaves itself open to interpretation. It's um, I watched uh, Under the Skin recently, which is a film that completely leaves itself open to interpretation. I've heard theories uh, outside of, the, of it being her being an alien that... Uh, one theory I heard that she's actually a rape victim mm. and this is all happening in her mind. So yeah, that's, um, that is one of the joys of, of film. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree entirely as well with all of this. I mean, um, you know, this is, this is one of the, uh, the, the, the reasons I kind of wish, you know, winding back a couple of years that I had this, uh, this graphic novel, um, you know, when I was teaching film, because, uh, you, you, you know, one of the things I used to, when we looked at film theory and, um, you know, structures and, we, we, you know, we talked about things like, you know, auteur theory versus uh, collaboration, et cetera, and, and how ambiguous film is or can be. Um, you, you know, we, we talked very much about how, how film is different from real life, even if it's a contemporary you, you know, realistic, like kitchen sink drama or whatever, you know, and how everything in film, everything is there for a reason, as opposed to, you know, in life, sometimes stuff is just there, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and how you do, you select everything from, you, you know, a, a prop on the table to what the character is wearing. It's all the thought goes into that. And then mm -hmm. that obviously feeds into other theories like mise-en-scene and, you know, Think things of that nature. So, um, you, you know, I, I do. I, I think the the whole thing is fascinating, really. Um, hence, why I mean, you, you know, this is you've put in this novel. Uh, sorry, in this graphic novel, essentially what I've spent my entire life thinking about. <laughs> it's it's it, it's sort of condensed into this. So, uh, you, you know, it's it, it's 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 really good. The other thing I like that you've done in this as well is the fact that. If anybody did want to delve deeper than what you've actually got on the page, it's really well referenced. I love the fact that you've got a whole um, sort of glossary at the back with with, you know, references uh, 
to those films and those quotes and things of that nature. So again, if, if somebody wanted to use this as a basis and then go study more, which let's be honest, that's what film is. It's all about that onion, you know, that you're constantly peeling away and looking at more things into it. Then, then they've got a, um, a piece of reference material at the back that they can use as well. So uh, that must have taken quite a long time to compile, I would have thought. Um, what, the, the, the references? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I was fairly systematic in, in the process, but I got to the end and I was like, I had these, a bit of space at the back. Um, and first it was just going to be, um, you know, the references, like the, 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 the books that I'd referenced. Um, and I was like, oh, but I should probably like point out of films I've referenced, um, which turned out to be uh, three hundred <laughs> films. Um, <laughs> that's that's including like the panels where I've got like you know maybe a prop from another film or something hiding in the background. Um, and then I was like, okay, but also I'll use a space to to expand on things because you know I guess one of the things about comics is that you've got a relatively limited space to work with. Um, you know, I couldn't I could never go into immense detail in the way that you could with um, with prose. Um, but you know, the, but at the same time, you've got the benefit of having like drawings to 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 help sort of tell the story. So, where in a piece of prose, you might have to actually describe the scene in Blade Runner or whatever that you're talking about and describe the background. In a comic, you can just draw it. Um, but I wanted in the back to have to have a bit more information. There's sometimes moments where I'd maybe chosen one side of the argument but not covered the other side of the argument to be able to kind of give people the idea that it's not just a sort of you know it's not just that this is the answer that maybe there's a sort of it's contested or something maybe some ideas are contested or there's further reading that that you could do to kind of see the other side of things um, it was important that that people could have that access point you know it's definitely not the you know the only thing you should read on film theory and if you want to learn more yeah it'd be good to be able to know where to start yeah the, the other the other nice thing you've done in some of these panels as well is is the amount of you, you know not only have you sort of uh, created a panel you know from a from a still from the film but you you've also in some cases put like loads of other references and easter eggs and 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 those sort of things in there i mean i particularly like the one where you're talking a little bit about social decline and video nasties and you you've got the whole video library and if you start like reading some of the um some of the names of the on the sides of the uh the the, the videos and and some of the posters and things of things like that you know you've got that throughout so yes it's great I love all that stuff yeah I think I can't remember if I succeeded but my intention there was to feature like all of the 72 video nasties that were banned in the UK I don't know if I I'll have to count them up um, I don't was there anything that didn't make the uh, graphic novel uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> um like oh, let me say the special editions due uh, out next uh, year, right? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> um, um, there was um, there was definitely films that kind of that I would love to cover. Filmmakers and films I'd love to cover at some point that that didn't make it just because it wasn't like uh, appropriate to the topic or because I had to choose, you know, one not the other. So, like one of my favorite all-time films is the thing, the thing, the, the okay. John Carpenter one. Um, and I would have loved to have covered that. I would have loved to have drawn some stuff from that. That would have been really, really fun. Um, but I just didn't make the cut. Like, I, I guess in the end I chose 
when I was doing Body Horror, I chose The Fly over The Thing, which are two films that kind of compete in my affections. Um, yeah. We mentioned The Thing a few times on this podcast. <laughs> yes. We do, yes. <laughs> That's good. So good. <laughs> I think it's got its own episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like like that. And then I'm a big fan of like Werner Herzog. Um, his films almost defy analysis. I'm not sure... Um, I think, and also I feel like if I ever bumped into him and I'd analyze his films, he probably wouldn't, <laughs> I get the impression he doesn't really think too highly of film theorists. So, um, he'd scare but, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so there's certainly, I mean, there's, there's loads more to, to cover. I've, I've got a, a list of chapters I'd like to do in the future. Um, so if I get a chance to do another, another volume that would, that sort of, I've already got ideas for that and there's there's loads to cover because you know you know I never went down the route of of doing a chronological history um and just so because you're just choosing these topics that are that are sort of self-contained you could you know you could go on forever essentially I mean you might start repeating yourself and covering the same films again and again but there's there's so many different ways to look at film like I I, I think I like to think of it as you're just kind of taking a different angle on things um, so there's just endless grind to cover, really. Well, I, I do love the fact that you, you jump around in time and uh, genre and stuff, because um, I don't know if you saw like the history of film that Mark Cousins did, mm. but that was because he did that in chronological order. It, it did take a, a while to sort of get into it. Yeah. Uh, if, uh-huh. if you've seen it. I mean, That's it the was... story of film, isn't it? Yeah. The story of film. Yeah. 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 Because he does start from the very beginning and then works his way through the through the through the century. <laughs> you know, I think that's a, a, a really like I think if you're doing a sort of an authoritative piece, and I think that the story film is, is it wants to be not necessarily covering everything, but to be a very um, a very full piece on on film. I think you know you do need to tell the history, hmm. but for me, that's never been how I've watch film you know i've never really done that I've, I've i've maybe been in the mood to watch a bunch of disaster movies and watch a few of those or um body horror movies and watch a few of those like you consume across i i consume film across time um you know not necessarily focusing on one era or, or one moment in cinema but but sort of drawing on different different times and so forth so yeah, it always felt natural for me to go to go that way um, I, you know, I should say Mark Cousins was like a huge influence on me. Like, I think he was the the first film, you know, the first voice on film that I that I heard in that way. You know, because um, he did the the movie Rome introductions. Um, so on those VHSs that I had taped off the TV, you'd have him at the start, kind of introducing. <laughs> oh, so you missed the uh, the Alex Cock era then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're a bit young for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're um, old kids, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel well, cool yeah. just talking about VHS. <laughs> uh, we, 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 we always took, we've got a, a whole episode on VHS. We, we have very fond memories, yes. <laughs> yeah, there was something about that. Um, but I think that that's, I, I mentioned it in the introduction and I mention it when I'm talking about it because it just, it, I mean, maybe it probably won't make, it probably won't mean anything to those who haven't. Um, had that experience of watching on VHS, but it's just something that just really defines my experience of those films. So not only are we talking about them on VHS, but for me, we're talking about them on VHS tapes off the TV. So mm-hmm. my 
for years, my experience of The Shining was taped off the TV with like the Stella Artois advert yes. break and the yeah. adverts. <laughs> yes, I yes. You know, so yeah. me it's too. Like, it's like that is kind of just lingering there in my subconscious. That is still part of The Shining, you know, is that kind of and the late night adverts and stuff like that. Well, I can always remember the commercial breaks from Star Wars when it used to be on ITV. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's kind of part of it, and I think that's an interesting element of of how we can consume film. I mean, that's kind of going away now, um, but that's for like a, a, a few, you know, for a generation of people. That's like that's a kind of part of it. Um, that was part, you know, the whole part of the experience was slipping the VHS tape and again, kind of sucked in and the tracking signal, and then yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> they, they they got it so easy now because at, at the weekend I. Um, I watched all of, uh, I, this is very sad, but I watched the entire uh, series of Jessica Jones and Daredevil season two on Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I Chromecast it to my, you know, big screen TV. Mm. And it's brilliant because you, d- you literally don't have to do anything. If you want to watch the next episode, <laughs> it jumps right in. And, and on Jessica Jones, because Jessica Jones doesn't have a pre-credits bit. It has the credits and then straight into the story. Mm. It even jumps through that. So you don't have yeah. to fast forward through <laughs> anything. <laughs> and it just it just does it all for you. And I think to myself, oh, my God, I remember having to sort of, you know, get up and put the tape in and fast forward to the bit and get the tracking right and all of that <laughs> sort of stuff. And now it's it's, you know, HD perfect. Just like that, easy. <laughs> so, yes, times have changed. And I like the fact that you do end leading back to your, you know, the, the graphic novel. That's what we're here to talk about. But I do like the way that you kind of end with the um, uh, talking about technology and, and how, um, you know, not just technology in films, but actual technology in filmmaking and cinema as well and how that's uh, evolving. I think that's a really good um, note you know, to end your graphic novel mm-hmm. on. So, yeah, you know, I mean, yes, part I, of it. like I said, I say at the end of the book, who was it again? I can't remember. Um, but that, that, you know, that cinema, the idea that cinema hasn't been invented yet. Um, actually, just looking up now. <laughs> uh, Andre Bazan. Yeah. So the idea that, that, you know, he said that, 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 the cinema hasn't been invented yet that that as a medium it's always changing and that the first people who the, the first inventors of cinema didn't you know they hadn't planned for this sort of really cool moody black and white <laughs> footage that wasn't what they were going for they wanted full color 3d surround sound vr or whatever like they they were kind of those initial forays into film was the hope that one day they could capture reality in some mm-hmm. way and that that's the not that that's necessarily that doesn't that's not to disavow these other moments in its history, but that film is always going to evolve. The concept of of the moving image is is a, uh, has sort of long been striving to capture more and more fidelity to reality, um, and has evolved in other ways as well. And um, and I think it's you know I think it is sad that we when we lose touch with our film history, but also. I think it's important to, to also look to the future and to try and uh, harness new technologies artistically as well. 
No, absolutely. I, I, I agree entirely. Um, I have got one question I have to ask. I mean, obviously, you've done a really good job as well of capturing the likeness of, um, of many of the, uh, the actors, stroke filmmakers that you cover throughout this. Um, who was the most difficult person to draw? <laughs> um, well, I think the one that I never even managed to get right was uh, Guy Pierce. Um, <laughs> oh, you got the memento bit. Yeah, you, I'm not satisfied with yeah. my drawing. Um, I don't know what's. Oh, what, I don't know. Wrong with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've made him very well, mind you. He is quite lean, isn't he? He's yeah. very lean in that um, film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I think, I think he just it works. Be seen in 3D in real life, I don't know. <laughs> but um, there was something I just couldn't, I couldn't. Like I just tried and tried, and I couldn't get that. That. I would love to go back. <laughs> um, well, put it where I knew who it was. So, but yeah, then again, yeah, but it's, it's very iconic, of course. It's in the context. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, um, you know, it's, uh, I, tried, I tried my best with, with the likenesses. Um, so, I don't know. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's pretty, I guess it's pretty important, but it's not the most important thing to me to, to get the likeness spot on. Oh, um, no, no, not at all. But, uh, but, but, but it, but you have, I mean, you know, it's it's just by flicking through it without even reading it, you know, mm. um, you can pick up on on the film references and you know who they are and things of that, you know, ilk very well. So yeah. see, the, the reason that um, that I feature in it is that that's the one thing I know I can draw. <laughs> the one thing I know I can draw is myself. <laughs> so I, um, that's you know when stuck I stick my head on top of the character like you did for Marty McFly yeah <laughs> and Indiana Jones and, and Yoda yeah <laughs> uh, I especially like your Yoda I, 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 that's that one of my favourites and that and, and the, the most fun place to draw was, was me as Brundlefly oh right because um, I could just go full like horror <laughs> <laughs> yes, Brundlefly. <laughs> That's brilliant. You, you know, hopefully, people listening to this um, will will you know go out and uh, and buy a copy. <laughs> that, I hope so, that yeah. would be good. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's had a really good response um, from from those who've, who've read it. It's been really nice to to hear from people who've read it and going to comic conventions and so forth. Um, you know, people, people who are into film, I think really like seeing, seeing this kind of stuff. And it was kind of done for, for that audience to, to be able to kind of enjoy their films. And, and also like, even people who know this stuff already really enjoyed it. Like who know the film theory, like I never wrote it because I never wrote it to be a hard introduction. You know, like to be like a, uh, this is here to educate you. Yeah. It's really here to entertain you. So like, even if you know your film theory, I think you should get something It does both. It does both, and and much like film, I always think that that's that's the best kind when it when it can, you know, both entertain and educate all in one go. I think that's um, that that's really good. Can I ask? I mean, have you do you still have any aspirations to make films? Maybe I I mean I think I I, I probably would enjoy it. I think it's just you know the reason I kind of swayed over to. To, to comics was that it was just so accessible like it was so easy to to pick up a pen and start drawing uh compared with with filmmaking where there's such a sort of a huge run-in time to get to get things done i actually did make films as a as a teenager with my friends um 
so I've got I've kind of got the, the experience and I feel like I'm quite adept you know I still actually do film filmmaking sort of professionally um but never you know never my own stories never my own ideas um so I've got the, I've got the the skills it's just like it's almost just like having the idea of what you want what you want to dedicate your time to the passion kind of just ended up going over to comics and when you've got the passion for something it makes such a difference um and that was that's what I'd find back then was was that I didn't have the passion to be to to be working on the films I was working on I had the passion to be working on the comics I was working on and that's why that kind of took over but you know um I loved I I think my kind of on on the back burner ambition is to to make a horror like a, a horror short at the moment that would be something kind of cool to to get around to doing because i think that'd be really fun playing around with gloopy blood effects and stuff cool i mean it's it's amazing what you can do now with with these digital slrs and even mm. with iphones i mean i've i've shot with them a lot and uh i've always been quite impressed with the the footage i get from it because if you put it in with other footage nobody can tell yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, I've got access to the equipment and everything. It's just, it's literally the ideas. It's like, um, but I think, I mean, that's, you know, that's one thing that I talk about in, in, in filmish is like what's amazing in the last few years is just the, the, the sheer accessibility of filmmaking. It's like, it's, that's not like access to the equipment. Well, some people, you know, a lot of people aren't going to have access to the equipment, but access to the equipment is probably no longer, if you really want to do it, is no longer the issue, it's not, like a no, it's it's not, not a barrier. No, it's not a barrier. It's not a barrier anymore. You, no. Most people have smartphones, even so. Even then, you could you could make a film. It might be a bit ropey, but um, but you know, like that's not the the, the barrier is actually um, doing it. You know, like is is having that that drive and that that interest to to do it. Um, so one day, <laughs> I, I agree. I, I've got another. It's a process. It's a bit boring because it's a processy question. But we we had a um, we had a storyboard artist uh, on a few podcasts ago, and and I asked him the same question. I'm just curious. Um, do you? I mean, in terms of your drawing, do do you do you do really old school and 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 use pen and paper, or are you kind of a tablet and stylist sort of guy i mean how how do you work nowadays in in this modern era that we're in um yeah i i I work digitally entirely well not entirely so i once it's written i the one bit of pencil and paper that i do is i draw tiny little thumbnails so i'll draw sort of the size of a playing card that'll be the page so i'll draw these tiny little boxes with tiny little scribbled out figures in them just to work out the sort of the rough composition and the the the, the order of the panels and, and and the layout and everything that's the only stage i do on paper and then i work digitally i just work in photoshop with a wacom tablet okay. um, i found that like i used to actually draw on paper the the, the first few self-published issues of film i did were, were all on paper and then i found that i started getting making more and more corrections in photoshop and then by the third issue i drew half the panels in photoshop and then by the fourth issue i drew it all in photoshop um and then the book's all in photoshop as well the kind of one of the reasons is just that it's i find it a lot i personally find it a lot faster there's a lot less faffing around and if you make a, a mistake or if you want to re um compose your panels at all it's so easy certainly early on when you're when you're just 
doing the digital equivalent of a pencil drawing. It's so easy to just pick something up and move it or resize it. And so I just find that so valuable for yeah for... yeah it's more malleable and more shareable and things of that nature isn't it yeah. like like all digital technology now it just uh it just gives you that that bit more control and um allows you to share and and, and things things around that so um that that's cool can i also ask i mean you, you touched on it very um briefly there um can you talk a little bit about the whole self-publishing side of things yeah, I think that's kind of interesting because it, it, I think it relates a bit to, to filmmakers as well now. Um, so, yeah, the self-publishing thing was, was you know, when I, when I started out, I was taking, I was, I was drawing the issues of Filmish and then, you know, packaging them together in a, in a PDF and sending it off to a printer. Um, the first ones I did were just done off of a, like a booklet photocopier. And then from there you have to, you know, you're doing it all yourself. So you have to like publicize it yourself and, and get it into shops yourself. And like, it's really rewarding. Like it's a really good way to, to start because you're, you're learning a lot as you go and you can make mistakes as you go. You're getting things into to shops and selling them to people early on. Like I only, the first um, issue of Filmish I did, I only printed a hundred copies for that very first run. And getting them into shops and selling them was just really like really rewarding and, and they sold quite quickly. So I could then afford to print another hundred and, and so forth, you know, it builds from there. Um, but I, with comics, with graphic novels and comics, what's really interesting is that that's actually like maybe compared to like literature, comics, the, the comics are actually that that's the backbone of like comics creation is people self-publishing although the sort of most obvious side is like the dc and marvel and then the independent pub publishers who are doing non-superhero stuff there's actually for for every one of those comics there's probably 10 self-published comics out there um and and the quality is you wouldn't be i mean although you might choose to print it on a booklet printer or something you know it is actually possible to get completely professional levels of quality from that self-publishing um and it's led to like a huge explosion in the number of comic creators out there and they you know and again the accessibility is really good so it means that people with with really interesting voices and alternative voices to the mainstream are getting their work out there and, and getting them to an audience it's really, yeah, for, it's really exciting to to see that at the moment um, and I think that might compare, I mean, I don't, maybe don't know well enough the, the sort of the independent or the out of, you know, the, the non-cinema based movie, short, you know, movies or short movies scene. But I imagine there's maybe something similar going on with this sort of proliferation of creation where people are much more able to create stuff and get it out there, you know, via YouTube or whatever other um, outlets. Um, you know, that said, it, although it's, although there's a, a lot more people being able to create obviously there's not there's still not very much money <laughs> to be to be made um it's always like, the problem yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so people are you know a lot of people are doing it as as a hobby and even the people who are doing it professionally are probably not making very much money um but in terms of just sort of pure artistic um enjoyment you know the, the just purely in, in artistic terms it's amazing to be able to to get your work out there that easily now 
Um, and I think that's, yeah, as I say, that's always been the, that's actually always been at the heart of what comics are because you've obviously got going back to like the countercultural comics of the 1960s and 70s, like Robert Crumb, you know, they were all, they were zines, you know, they were zines, they were, they were photocopied or, or cheaply printed, uh, kind of fairly disposable things. Um, so that's really at the heart of comics culture, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, just sort of talking about the way films are at the moment. I mean, it's. Uh, I think that's the the problem is 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 sort of making money off 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 these projects now because um, you you can put it on YouTube and you can put it on places like Vimeo and stuff, but uh, I think as soon as you put it on the internet, people don't want to pay for it. It's. Mm it's that whole attitude that because it's on the internet it should be free yeah but yet people are w- quite willing to go to the cinema and pay 10 pounds or 15 pounds or whatever the price of a ticket is to go and see a film there but if it's online they just don't want to pay yeah it's it, it it's that thing where it, i mean I, I love what i do i love making films but um i also love to make a living off it <laughs> that's that's the thing i'm you know finding difficult at the moment is trying to make a living off it and um you know and, and hopefully things will change but it's sort of just getting past that you know that that idea that the that everything on the internet should be free yeah i think yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I thought, so so the, the the sort of the the positive cases within comics and i don't know if there's a kind of maybe a very mildly different attitude with comics, but I do know that maybe less so since the recession, but before the recession, there were people who, and I, I do know people who do make a living off of, of comics and not only just making a living off of comics, but put, what I, I mean by that is putting their comics online for free, mm. but they're putting out something every day or two days or every week. And they've got a very dedicated audience who will then buy you know a t-shirt design that they make or a hard copy of the comic when it comes out or some sort of merchandise and that's how they kind of finance um doing the comics every day because they've got this really dedicated audience who will pay for things ultimately pay for things maybe maybe they're not paying for the comic but they're paying for they're paying for merchandise because they love the comic you know yeah it's very much like the music industry yeah. at the moment they they don't make money off the albums they make money off the tour and they yeah. make money off the merchandising it's very strange and it's a real you know, it's obviously a real shame but i can uh, but i can also see you know, like i'm as guilty as anyone of being the same like feeling like so for example you get like um you know like patreon or kickstarters and like you know you go oh that would be really nice to do but you know I'm not sure I want to put down two pounds a month or whatever or put down you know like it is you can't do it for everyone and then you feel kind of a bit like I think people I don't know there's partly a psychological thing about feeling like yeah you're doing it for free and partly because of that and because of the cost of other things it's like oh well because I can get this for free you know and because I'm not got all that much money you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pay for it like i'd love to pay for it but i'm not gonna pay for it and i like everyone does that and in the end it's it is kind of destructive um towards these things because it creates these really kind of untenable situations for individuals and i guess the unfortunate thing is that although it creates untenable situations for individuals there's just enough people coming through the kind of the grinder of um of creatives that 
that you know for every person who gets ground out by the process or sort of worn down and no, no longer able to afford to do what they love to do there's a new person who's come along with something um to you know to take their place and so there's the content is kind of unending i think there's a growing movement uh with illustrators and comic artists of like really starting to properly demand favor pay and to to um to kind of really look carefully at how how they how they give away stuff for free and just sort of stop giving away work for free i think it's a slightly different matter um but sometimes you almost ironically sometimes you can't afford not to work for free you know sometimes you sometimes people feel like i'm not going to get anywhere if i don't work for free i'll work for free this time you know mm. but it's no you know that's no good like that's that you know it's only once you're in a comfortable position that you can start to turn down work you know what i mean so people end yeah. up working for you know four days for 50 pounds or something like that because that's what the client offered was 50 pounds to do whatever you know yeah um, it's, it's it's the same with any creative endeavor isn't it um um sadly you know it's it's the 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 arts is is just uh you, you know hard to make money and until you get until you get in there and then yeah you know once you're established then 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 life changes but it's uh it, it, it's it's crossing that barrier is 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 the is the difficult bit isn't it <laughs> well yeah there could well be ways around it in the long term i don't know if people start changing their minds i think if there was kind of a really simpler way to like there was talk of a while ago and i don't know if it, it certainly hasn't become sort of uh global as a thing you see but like you know this idea that you could just when you're browsing just click a button and, and that sends like a few you know even a few pence 50 pence someone's way because you liked what they read but without you know in a way that was like you wouldn't need to sign in and like go through this whole process every single time you wanted to do that um i wonder if that would make a difference or not I, it's hard to tell I, I, I don't think there's much evidence that it does but it could in time if people start to kind of change their their outlook on these things yeah well we have a i mean the other big problem is uh, the explosion of content that's out there and and that's you know that's growing exponentially as well i mean that's just that's one of those things we can't do anything about it's just just the way mm. as time moves on that's the way it is but um but a qu quick question for you on on with regards to release uh of this i mean obviously as i already mentioned i i went into um I know you can get it online, but I went into a, a, a local store and actually picked up a yeah. a hard copy of this. And, and myself and Simon were often talking about, you know, how with Blu-rays and stuff, we kind of like having the physical mediums, mm. sort of collector's medium, as it were. Um, but is this, is, is, is your uh, graphic novel also available as a digital uh, graphic novel or is it only, um, you know, a hard copy printed edition? It's, it's only a yeah, it's only a hard copy edition available. Good for you. Um, <laughs> um, I think that the the publisher's strategy is to like release a digital edition maybe a couple of years down the line, which I think is quite smart. Like it gives you there's a window where that's the the hard copy is the exclusive way to get it, and then maybe once you know sales are tapering off a bit, then that's an opportunity to kind of re-engage people in a new medium. Um, yeah, like I, I really like the, you know, I obviously really like the hard copy. I think it's sad when it's like, especially with comics, actually, because there's something really like, I don't find very appealing about reading comics on like a, a Kindle or something. I don't actually really mind reading them on a screen, but 
I still much prefer to read it as a as a hard copy. I think that's really so much part of the the pleasure of it. Um, and then also comics as a medium. There's something about like reading it, the way you can consume it. Like there's in in, in filmish, like there's some page spreads where you open it up and it's like. Um, you know the the backyard scene from Rear Window or a trip to the moon, the the, the moon head, sort of over the two page spread. So I like I wanted mm-hmm. to do, to do things that really would be really nice to see in in a in a physical form because you're holding the book in front of you and you can see it laid out before you. Um, so I don't know how that's going to translate when they do do the the digital edition. Like it won't necessarily translate perfectly, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, and just in terms of like, it's good for, for your listeners, it's good to know that, um, you know, because authors due to the kind of, due to things like Amazon, um, and just general changes in the industry sort of crunching the, the, uh, the amount of money made, like the best way to, if you do want to support someone and maybe you don't want to, you know, sign up to a Patreon or, or buy stuff online, but if, if someone does have a product, for for sale, you do want to buy it. Like the best way to buy it is um, not through Amazon. <laughs> is like buying it from a from orbitalcomics.com. Orbitalcomics.com. Yes. There you go. I've got another plug in for them. <laughs> Blimey, how big was this discount? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't 2%. that big. But no. <laughs> yeah, but like honestly, like supporting. Um, so, like if you can get it from the creator directly, if you can get it from a local book, like a, an independent bookshop, or or yeah, like all these ways, like they actually do make a considerable difference. So it's definitely worth doing if you can. That's just, that is the same for like filmmakers. Um, if they've got a film on their site, then um, you know, if they if you can buy a DVD copy off them or a Blu-ray copy, I mean that helps support them. Mm-hmm. That's a it's a massive boost because at the moment it is you know for every film you watch on Netflix, you know the filmmaker doesn't see hardly anything from it. I mean, they see pennies. Well, you know, you know what? I mean, obviously, I'm an extreme type case because I'm a I'm a mm. massive film geek. But um, when I was watching, uh, you, you know, uh, Jessica Jones and Daredevil at, at, at the weekend, I actually was in the back of my mind thinking, oh, I hope they release this on Blu-ray and that there's commentaries <laughs> and deleted scenes and extras and documentaries and all this sort of thing. You know, and obviously, I don't know. I don't think there's any plans for that at the moment because obviously it's mm. a Netflix property and they, they haven't gone in, you know, they are by their very nature all about their streaming mm. service. I think, rather you can than... get, I think you can get House of Cards on Blu-ray though. Yeah. You can, that's very true, you can, yes. But I, I think, I don't know whether they're, in fact, I hope, um, I hope we're not entering an age where uh, uh, the extras start to disappear because uh, I must admit I am, you, you know, one of my film school very much apart from going to film school, but very much, um, y- y- you know, from, from when, uh, oh God, I'm going to date myself now, but from when uh, Laserdisc, which I never had, I skipped over Laserdisc, but I had friends that had Laserdiscs. Uh, when that first came out and the, the, the whole notion of audio commentary while you were watching a film, I, you know, I just found that fascinating. And, um, y- y- you know, I've, I, I, I feel robbed now if I buy a, um, a Blu-ray and there's not a commentary on it. You know, <laughs> I'm always like, what the hell? Where's the commentary? 
but yeah, you know, those other things like documentaries and deleted scenes and trailers and all that sort of mm. thing, it, it's it's always good. We we talk about that quite a lot on these podcasts. And uh, I, I look at it the same as as with buying, you know, I have in front of me now as we're speaking your um your graphic novel and you know it's got a nice cover and a nice finish and it's just nice to have in the rack i think you know mm. <laughs> so <laughs> well i think that's a good place to to wrap it up yes um so um edward uh what's what's the best place to uh what's your website um so there's a there's a website for filmish which is filmish.co.uk and actually that's got like um bonus features <laughs> well kind of um, I did like after the book was um, finished. I did sort of post some links. I mean, it's not extensive, but there's some links to some kind of cool stuff that I maybe looked at when I was making the book, or um, just otherwise thought was kind of cool. So there's some like links to videos and video essays and some articles. Um, and from there, also you can buy direct from me. You can buy copies of the book, a um, signed I, copy. No you can buy less. signed copies, and I do a little sketch as well. <laughs> Oh, nice. Um, so that's like, obviously for me, that's like the, the, the best way. And you, as a, as a thank you, you get a, you get a, little, a little drawing in the, in the front of your book. Cool. So yeah, uh, filmish.co.uk. Excellent. And Keith, where can we find your work? Uh, yeah, well, uh, YouTube, if you go to British Isles, that's E-Y-L-E-S, uh, you can see for free um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> some short films that I've made. And if you're, interested in anything else that i've been involved in then by all means put my name into imdb because i think i'm the only keith isles on there currently and you can find my work as always on independentrunnings.com you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher and all good um podcast websites downloaders you know whatever's whatever's out there we seem to be on it at the moment and um uh do follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just search for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, if you're on iTunes or Stitcher, please leave us a review and a rating. Yes, give us a review and spread the word. Please do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Edward, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. No, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the good work on this. Uh, we're just we're just happy to spread the word. And uh but before we sign off, I have to say a big uh, thank you to uh, Claire Bueno, who uh, introduced us to this book and uh, also suggested that we should talk to Edward. So uh, thank you for that, Claire. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Claire. She's out there promoting the Ghostbusters documentary as we speak. That's it. Cleaning up the town. And uh, so that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and uh, join us for the next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. <laughs>